Peace be with you, juniors. It's Mr. Shovelin with you for your class recording of your class reading for Friday, December 3rd from Mere Christianity by Clive Staples Lewis. The reading from chapter 6 of book 3 on Christian marriage. Christian marriage is what we're reading about today. You should have your PDF out and open with the link that is titled link in Google Classroom. Out and open to page 53 of the PDF. That's where we're going to be picking up with the second full paragraph on page 53 and reading through the top of page 58. Let us begin. Christian marriage. The last chapter was mainly negative. I discussed what was wrong with the sexual impulse in man, but said very little about its right working. In other words, about Christian marriage. There are two reasons why I do not particularly want to deal with marriage. The first is that the Christian doctrines on this subject are extremely unpopular. The second is that I have never been married myself and therefore can speak only at second hand. But in spite of that, I feel I can hardly leave the subject out of out in account of Christian morals. The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. For that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And Christians believe that when he said that this his, excuse me, when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact, just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one organism, or that a violin and a bow are one instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which are intended to go along with it and to make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting, by chewing things and spitting them out again. As a consequence, Christianity teaches that marriage is for life. There is, of course, a difference here between different churches. Some do not admit a divorce at all. Some allow it reluctantly in very special cases. It is a great pity that Christians should disagree about such a question. But for an ordinary layman, the thing to notice is that the churches all agree with one another about marriage a great deal more than any of them agrees with the outside world. I mean that they all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body as a kind of surgical operation. Some of them think this, the operation so violent it cannot be done at all. Others admit it as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both of your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. What they all disagree with is the modern view that it is a simple readjustment of partners to be made whenever people feel they are no longer in love with one another or when either of them falls in love with someone else. Before we consider this modern view in its relation to chastity, we must not forget to consider it in relation to another virtue, namely justice. Justice, as I said before, includes the keeping of promises. Not everyone who has been married in a church has made a public, solemn promise to stick to his or her partner till death. 
The duty of keeping that promise has no special connection with sexual morality. It is the same position as any other promise. If, as modern people are always trying to tell us, that sexual impulse is just like all our other impulses, then it ought to be treated like all our other impulses, and as their indulgence is controlled by our promises, so should its be. If, as I think, it is not like our, all our other impulses, but is morbidly inflamed, then we should be especially careful not to let it lead us into dishonesty. To this, someone may reply that he regarded the promise made in front of the church as a mere formality and never intended to keep it. Whom, then, was he trying to deceive when he made it? God? That was really very unwise. Himself? That is not much wiser. The bride or the bridegroom? Or the in-laws, that was treacherous. Most often, I think the couple, or one of them, hoped to deceive the public. They wanted the respectability that is attached to marriage without intending to pay the price. That is, they were impostors. They cheated. But if they, if they are still contented cheats, I have nothing to say to them. Who would urge the high and hard duty of chastity on people who have not yet wished to be merely honest? If they have now come to their senses and want to be honest, their promise already made constrains them. And this, you will see, comes under the heading of justice, not that of charity. If people do not believe in permanent marriage, it is perhaps better they should live together unmarried than they should make vows they do not mean to keep. It is true that living together without marriage, they will be guilty in Christian eyes of fornication. But one fault is not mended by adding another. Unchastity is not improved by adding perjury. The idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. The curious thing is that lovers themselves, while they really remain really in love, know this better than those who talk about love. As Chesterton pointed out, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. The Christian law is not forcing upon the passion of love something which is foreign to that passion's own nature. It is demanding that lovers should take seriously something which their passion of itself impels them to do. And of course, the promise made when I am in love, and because I am in love, to be true to the beloved as long as I live, commits one to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise to never have a headache or always to be hungry. But what it may be asked is the use of keeping two people together if they are no longer in love. There are several sound social reasons to provide a home for their children, to protect the woman who has probably sacrificed or damaged her own career by getting married from being dropped whenever the man is tired of her. But there is also another reason of which I am very sure, though I find it a little hard to explain. It is hard because so many people cannot be brought to realize that when A, excuse me, when B is better than C, A may be even better than B. They like thinking in terms of good and bad, not of good, better, and best, or bad, worse, and worst. They want to know whether you think patriotism is a good thing. If you reply that it is, of course, far better than individual selfishness, but it is inferior to universal charity and should always give way to universal charity when the two are in conflict, they think that you are being invasive. 
they ask you what you think of dueling. If you reply that it's far better to forgive a man than to fight a duel with him, but that even a duel might be better than a lifelong enmity which expresses itself in secret efforts to do the man down, they go away complaining that you would not give them a straight answer. I hope no one will make this mistake about what I am now going to say. What we call being in love is a glorious state and in several ways good for us. It helps to make us generous and courageous. It opens our eyes not only to the beauty of the beloved, but to all beauty, and it subordinates, especially at first, our merely animal sexuality. In that sense, love is the great conqueror of lust. No one in his senses would deny that being in love is far better than either common sensuality or cold self-centeredness. But as I said before, the most dangerous thing you can do is to take anyone impulse of our own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs being in love is a good thing but it is not the best thing there are many things below it but there are also many things above it you cannot make it the basis of a whole life it is a noble feeling but it is still a feeling now no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go, and in fact, whatever people say, the state of being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean they felt for the next fifty years exactly like they felt the day bef- like exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true, and would be highly undesirable if it were true. Who could bear to live? With in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, and your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not necessarily, need not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity, maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both parents ask and receive from God. They, excuse me, they can have this love for each other or other even at those moments when they do not like each other, as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. They can retain this love even when it would each would easily if they allowed themselves to be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep that promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. If you disagree with me, of course you will say, he knows nothing about it, he is not married. You may, qu- <coughs> excuse me, you may quite possibly be right. But before you say that, make quite sure that you are judging me by what you really know from your own experience and from watching the lives of your friends, not by ideas you have derived from novels and films. This is not so easy to do as people think. Our experience is covered, colored through and through by books and plays and the cinema, and it takes patience and skill to disentangle the things we have learned from life for ourselves. People get from books the idea that if you are married, the right person, you may, <coughs> excuse me, if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, they find when they find that you they are not, they think this proves that they have made a mistake and are now entitled to change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently 
go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The sort of thrill a boy has at the first idea of flying will not go on when he has joined the Royal Air Force and is really learning to fly. The thrill you feel at first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go to live there. Does this mean that it would be better not to learn to fly or not to live in the beautiful place? By no means. In both cases, if you go through with it, the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of interest. What is more, and I can hardly find words to tell you how important I think this is, it is just the people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the sober interests who are the most likely to meet new thrills in some quite different direction. The man who has learned to fly and becomes a good pilot will suddenly discover music. The man who has settled down to live in the beauty spot will discover gardening. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through the period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow, and you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, then you will they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. It is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back to the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. Another notion we get from novels and plays is that falling in love is something quite irresistible, something that just happens to one like measles. And because they believe this, some married people throw up the sponge and give in when they find themselves attracted by a new acquaintance. But I am inclined to think that these irresistible passions are much rarer in real life than in books, at any rate when one is grown up. When we meet someone beautiful and clever and unsympathetic, of course we ought in one sense to admire and love these good qualities. But it is not very largely in our choice whether this love shall or shall not turn into what we call being in love. No doubt, if our minds are full of novels and plays and sentimental songs and our bodies full of alcohol, we may sure excuse me, we shall turn any love we feel into that kind of love. Just as if you have a rut in your path, all the rainwater will run into that rut. And if you wear blue spectacles, everything will turn blue. But that will be our own fault. Before leaving the question of divorce, I would like to distinguish two things which which are very often confused. The Christian conception of marriage is one. The other is a quite different question. Now for, now for Christians. Excuse me. Now far Christians, if they are voters or members of parliament, ought to try to force, excuse me. Let me restart this sentence. The Christian conception of marriage is one. The other is the quite different question. Now, for Christians, if they are voters or members of parliament, ought to try to force their views of marriage on the rest of the community by embodying them in the divorce laws. A great many people seem to think that if you are a Christian yourself, you should try to make divorce very difficult for everyone. I do not think that. At least I know I should be very angry if the Mohammedans tried to prevent the rest of us from drinking wine. 
My own view is that churches should frankly recognize that the majority of British people are not Christians and therefore cannot be expected to live Christian rules. There ought to be two distinct kinds of marriage, one governed by the state with rules enforced on all citizens, the other governed by the church with rules enforced on all her own members. The distinction ought to be quite sharp so that a man knows which couples are married in a Christian sense and which are not. So much for the Christian doctrine about the permanence of marriage. Something else, even more unpopular, remains to be dealt with. Christian wives promise to obey their husbands. In Christian marriage, the man is said to be the head. Two questions obviously arise here. Why should be why should there be a head at all? Why not equality? And why should it be the man? Okay, is this where we are? 57? Very good. I think that's where we're going to end. You don't need to concern yourself with the last paragraph for today's lesson. If you want to read on and see why um, Lewis explains Christ's teaching of uh, the, the relationship between husband and wife, you're welcome to read that. But you do not have to read that for today's purposes. You can finish there. This last um, paragraph, last full paragraph on page 56 into 57 and this first full paragraph on 57. That is where you can finish for today. Thank you for reading along with me, and I hope that this reading was enlightening for you, and I encourage you to take seriously the questions and the reading and think about it in terms of your own life. God bless you.